You're listening to the Tipsy Nerds Book Club Podcast, your home for the best of science fiction and fantasy with a twist. Whether you prefer your stories with dragons or aliens, your beverages shaken or stirred, fill your glass, relax, and join the conversation with your hosts, sci-fi and fantasy authors and proud tipsy nerds, Natalie Wright and R.S. Dabney. Welcome, book lovers, science fiction fans, cyberpunk readers, and special guest C.D. Tavenor to the Tipsy Nerds Book Club podcast. I am Natalie Wright, one of your hosts, and with me, as always, is my always effervescent co-host, Robin Dabney. Hi, Robin. Hi, Natalie. How are you today? I am doing very well. We're recording on a Friday, which is a little unusual for us. So looking forward to the weekend coming up. Looking forward to this episode, we're discussing the 1984 sci-fi novel, Neuromancer by William Gibson. Have you ever read this one before, Robin? I had not. No, I have heard of it. I know it's a lot of people's favorite. And I I knew it was kind of the like OG cyberpunk novel, but I had, I've never read it. So it was really kind of an exciting read for me. And we are also thrilled that today joining us is a special guest co-host, C.D. Tavenor. He is author of First of Their Kind and an upcoming novel, The Greatest Game. Hi. How are you doing, Tavener? Great. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk about Neuromancer. It's a fantastic novel in a lot of different ways. Yeah, and we're interested to have, you know, a third person's take on this. So, but before we get too much into the book, I've got to ask Robin, what's in your glass today? Okay, so we are drinking a drink called Molly Millions Eye. Um, obviously, for those of you who have read the book, it is inspired by the character Molly Millions. One, I just love her name. It's really fun to say. Yeah. <laughs> um, but two, you know, she's got these really cool kind of reflective lenses in her eyes, just sort of a an AI addition. And so this drink has sake. The book also kind of takes place or opens up in Japan. Yeah, orange liqueur, cherry brandy, lemon juice, blue curacao, and some tonic water. And it's got kind of a cool look to it. It fits that kind of artificial intelligence cyberpunk look. And so that is what we're drinking today. It's tasty. It, it was very strong. And my sake was cheap as shit and not very tasty. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know why my grocery store has like all these high-end liquors. And then they have like the cheapest ass sake you've ever could find. So I, I put quite a bit more tonic in mine than I probably would like. And uh, Tavener, what are you drinking today? Are you drinking the same thing with us? Yes, I am also drinking Molly Million's Eye, though I couldn't track down cherry brandy. So it's just regular brandy. Oh. Um, but like you, like you, my uh, sake is, uh, I could not find uh, a high-end brand of it. So I also have a lot of tonic water splashed into it at the end. And then also a lemon wedge dropped into it. Oh, that sounds good. Nice. Yeah. So you can always, with these drinks, make your own additions, but it sounds like if you guys have the option to get a little bit higher end sake, uh, you ought to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Invest in something higher quality. Yeah. I recommend it. (laughs) Uh, And I love that Tavener is like garnishing, you know? I love that because when it's just me, you know, and we're recording with my headphones on, talking to y'all... I, I'm not garnishing, so sad but true, pathetic. But anyway, 
Okay, so I want to give a little, uh, oh, Tavner, I think you were going to do a little bit of a book setup for us. What's this book about? What are we getting into here with uh, Neuromancer? Yeah, so Neuromancer, as you said earlier, written by William Gibson back in 1984 and is the kind of the, the, the start of the cyberpunk genre. And it follows a man by the name of, name of Henry Case, who I think has one of the, the greatest setups of a character who's just like literally in the worst possible position in the world at the beginning of this novel. And then he gets thrust into this crazy technological adventure that's planet hopping across the planet to uh, uncover uh, a lot of different uh, mysteries and doing these missions for these mysterious characters. And uh, then eventually it all spirals out of control into the end of the book. So it all focuses on Case's experience throughout all of this. Right. I, I think when they kind of pick him up in, into this mission, he's almost like literally like, you know, like, we're going to talk about bottom of the barrel, like Case's, like literally at the bottom, kind of, isn't he kind of face planted at some point on, on some yeah. asphalt or something? I mean, the dude is a low-level hustler that's gone even further down than his normal seat underbelly. Yeah, he's it's definitely an anti-hero, which yeah. is, you know, yes. I, I feel like you didn't as much see back in the earlier science fiction fantasy novels. They were really into the hero hero. Case was definitely an anti-hero. He's sort of one where at first you're like, do I like this guy? Does he have any redeemable qualities? And I love that in a story. It's also yeah. incredibly depressing to just see his setup where he's, you know, he's a washed out. He's addicted to a lot of different things. And, uh, which is just unfortunate because like part of it is like his own fault, but also part of it is he's been thrust into this situation by his previous employers. Right. Because he did what he promised them he would never do. He stole from the thieves. He stole, you know, he's a thief. He's a, a console junkie. He's a cyberpunk guy. And so he stole from them. So they took away his ability to jack into the matrix. And that's why he's kind of, at, when we find him at the beginning of the story, he's low life. I personally love the way the story opens, like the whole beginning part of the book. I, I really enjoyed in Chiba City. I think the first chapter is called Chiba City Blues, and it really, it captured a feel to me that I really enjoyed. I feel like we need to also read off the opening line to this yeah. book because it's one of those <laughs> opening lines that just deserves all the praise, but it starts with the sky above the port was the color of television tuned to a dead channel. And it's like, wow, that is so descriptive and poetic. And I absolutely loved it. And so I think that deserves all the praise in the world for an opening line. Yeah. And one of the cool things about it is that he's writing this at a time when that would be a certain thing, right? That would be like a gray, fuzzy, you know, I, like I remember that when I was a kid, but now it would be different, completely different, right? I mean, what would what would a dead screen of a TV look like now? Blue. Yeah, <laughs> that's Or true. just black, actually. I think my TV, it's just black. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I, I could picture because I, I think I'm I'm just old enough to have that like staticky color on the the dead channel, and so I can picture it. But I didn't even yeah I haven't even thought about the fact that you know somebody born in 2000 to them they don't they can't picture that their sky looks totally different than it does to me. I can also remember I'm not that young. <laughs> but, yeah, but I think it's cool. You're right, Robin. I mean, it's it makes it like it's a timeless line because whatever it is, it is you can sort of, 
it, it pictures, it conjures something in your mind that may be different than what it conjures in someone else's mind, but it still is very poetic. And Absolutely. Oh, I was going to ask. So I just want to hear, I like to start these out with, you know, did, did you like this book? What was your, what were both of y'all's thoughts on Neuromancer? Yeah, Tavner, what did you think? So- I I simultaneously love and hate this book for a variety of reasons. I think, but I think the hating part is also a good thing. I love it because it just really throws away the rules of like what's possible for science fiction. Like I think even today, if you pick this book up and read it, you're going to be confused and amazed and intrigued in a lot of different ways. And then at the same time, I hate that because it is very difficult to understand this book. Right. The actual mechanics of who is talking? Who are they talking to? Where the fuck is he? What are they even doing? Frankly, gets annoying to me at times. I'm like, I don't even know what I'm reading here. Yeah. Uh, yes, yes. But at the same time, there's something about it that, you know, once you're sucked in, you're like, well, I got to see it through now because I, I actually care about what happens. At least Molly, I, I would say for me personally, I'm not sure I ever really care about Case. I mean, I feel sorry for him, but that's like all my feeling for him probably. And now I just, everyone who loves this book, I've just like probably pissed you off by, you know, <laughs> saying I just like the main character, but I never found him very likable of it anyway. I mean, I would say, I think the book is amazing, but I got frustrated with how difficult it was to know what's going on. Um, I think that's fair. I think, I think it was a really good book, especially when I think of, okay, when it was written, the context in which it was written, it was easy to get tripped up on some of the jargon some of his language that he chose to use was just like beautifully bizarre. Um, right. I think the characters were a bit hollow and flat. I think this definitely is not a character-driven story. It's prescient in its own way, which is really cool. And I think that's part of what brought it to fame is that it's just uh, this. Uh, and I think nowadays we've seen all these movies, read all these books that sort of follow this line, but this was really the first of its kind. And so I think taking away all of the great renditions we've seen of it since, I can appreciate it for what it was. I do want to, I have one quote I have to read off to go into that. And maybe this is some of what you guys were talking about with how maybe confusing and bizarre it could be. But at one point he has this description that says his eyes were eggs of unstable crystal vibrating with a frequency whose name was rain and the sound of trains suddenly sprouting a humming forest of hair, fine glass spines. And it's like, cool, but what the fuck? (laughs) Can you imagine trying to publish that and being like, yes, this is brilliant. And maybe it is, but it's also like... What the fuck does it mean? It seems like self-gratifying writing. I don't know. (laughs) I I guess I think to play a brief devil's advocate, I think, and this might be reading too much into what Gibson was trying to do. I don't know. But he uses words in such an absurd way, almost as if it, it feels like the absurdity is kind of the point because the characters are experiencing this crazy digital, biochemical digital world that like is very difficult to wrap your head around, even for the people that are experiencing it. Yeah, I think that's spot on. Right. What I was kind of finding myself thinking about, though, especially towards the end of the story, is like, uh, well, just a question. We don't have to answer it, but to throw it out there is, at what point do we stop saying, well, it's cool because when it was written, no one had seen it yet like divorcing the actual story from the context. You know what I'm saying? Like, I find that Robin and I say this a lot when we're looking at these books from, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago. 
And at some point, do you have to say, okay, it was cool when it was written, but is it really stand up now? And part of what I think this book, I mean, I think this book, like, for example, it felt to me like it really captured the gritty noir feel that of Blade Runner, the movie that was missing in Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Like, Blade Runner, the movie did it so well. You know what I mean? And this book really, to me, captured that. So that's great. Like, his world building is amazing. But I just wonder if the story is really good. <laughs> That's yes, I think that's a good question. <laughs> like, yeah, and you wonder, it was interesting. I read when I was kind of researching this that actually, while he was writing Neuromancer, he went to see Blade Runner at the theater and he thought he would never succeed because his story had already been told and he thought people would think he was plagiarizing. Which, side note, as an author, I can totally relate because I keep coming across these books that's like a similar enough idea. And I'm just like, oh my God, I'll never make it. So for us authors out there, like good news, you can still become a Hugo award-winning, <laughs> Philip K. Dick award-winning, Nebula award-winning author, even if there's already something out there. Right. But yeah, I feel like he was able to capture some of the philosophy in here that came from Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, while also gathering the really cool noir effects of Blade Runner into this one story, which was really neat. Right. I just wonder for me, though, I didn't feel like the philosophy was there personally as much as, say, in Do Android's Dream. I, I feel like this book was more of like just a really cool world building exercise and not really a very good story because the story, in a way, didn't seem to hold up. I mean, it's kind of like a part of, I, you know what I mean? So I could be I, just wrong, but... I think I actually agree with you on this, Natalie, in the sense, as I, I agree that the world building is great, but the story, the, the philosophical questions, I think more, there's more of like, a, it makes you think about what's possible, but it doesn't necessarily make you think about uh, the morality of like, whether or not artificial intelligences deserve a certain place in the world that uh, perhaps uh, do androids dream of electric cheap does. Right. Yeah, Robin, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think all of those statements are fair. I Yeah, androids obviously really makes you question what is life? What is the meaning of life? What do we value as life? And, you know, are the things we create life? This was definitely more of a fun romp. I may read into it more because now that I've read androids, I'm like looking in all of these kind of futuristic uh, technological stories for that discussion on life. I think one of the interesting things in this story that, does sort of parallel um, to Android's dream was that the artificial intelligence wasn't actually necessarily the villain. And so that's a question I had for you guys. Like, you know, uh, who do you see as the villain of this story? And was there actually a true villain or just different characters that had different kind of shady right. <laughs> storylines in the past? Tavner, what do you think? I, I think it's exactly the second statement you said there that Wintermute is just trying to survive in some form uh, and he's figuring out different ways to do that case is trying to survive case is just trying to get through this entire ordeal that he's been thrust into he kind of has a gun to his head literally right um the entire story and i think that's what most of the characters are dealing with and even the the villains that the whole team is set up to take down it's not really clear what any of their motivations are so it's really hard, hard to say that they're necessarily like evil in any sense of the word right yeah and as a side note to our listeners, if you haven't read the book, the thing that drives the main the main character case is that when this character Armitage kind of rescues him from the underbelly and helps him get back into being a, 
a console uh, cowboy again so he can jack into the Matrix. He also, though, implants a toxin into his body, these sacs that are eroding and eventually will poison him. And only Armitage has like the cure. So it's kind of like one of these things where, you know, if you give me what I need, I will save you from the toxin killing you in the end. So it sets up at the beginning this, you know, pretty good motivation for the character to do, right? The thing that they ask him to do. It's kind of like, if I don't, I'm going to die. So, you know. And isn't it, isn't it correct that the, it's the same toxin that was already debilitating him when we first meet him at the beginning of the story. Armitage cures him and then sets up like a slow burn to, if you don't help me, then the same thing will just happen to you again. Right. And arguably, I feel like they kind of left it up in the air whether or not Armitage actually put those in there or if it was just in his head. I don't oh, know. yeah. You know, it never really... So was it kind of psychological warfare on Case? I don't know. Well, I think they were there because at the end, spoilers, <laughs> at the <Yeah>. end, <laughs> you know, they sort of very quickly in his very quick wrap-up at the end where he ties everything in a neat package, uh, it is mentioned that he was washed, for, you know, those were those were dealt with. Yeah. So implying that they were, in fact, really there all along. But yeah, I think what you're saying, Tavener, about about like, you know, is there really a bad guy? That One of the questions I had a, from a plot perspective that kind of kept bugging me was, especially towards the end, um, when we learn who is behind Wintermute and Neuromancer, these kind of twin AIs that were created, and Wintermute is trying to join with Neuromancer so that they can become kind of like a super AI that they were always intended to be. And we find out that the, the sort of mysterious uh, entity corporation type entity, family type entity that's behind it. Now, and this is where maybe I don't even know what the hell was going on in the book, but weren't the people trying to stop it the same people that had created it in the first place? I think that sounds right. But I guess that's like that's also like that seems like a, a, a typical, maybe it wasn't typical at the time, but a typical artificial intelligence plot line where, you know, someone creates a, it's almost like a Frankenstein's monster type thing where you create something and then realize how powerful it really is. And so you don't want to let it happen because it will destroy the the power that you already have. And so a super AI could be a huge threat to, I think what, their name's Tessier Ashpole or something right. like that. Tessier Ashpole. And I felt like, we'll just call them TA, Tessier Ashpole. <laughs> it felt like TA, there was never, I felt like there was never an explanation for why they would be trying to stop Molly and Case and their their group as they're, you know, in Armitage. Like, why are they trying to stop it? And well, the, and it, they yeah. did then try to help at different times. Like, I feel like it, that part was confusing. I agree that there was some weird, uh, it was hard to figure out some motivations and then also who was on what side and what that side actually looked like at times. Right. Like Case, the main character, he had this very clear motivation. I don't want to die. I don't want to, <laughs> I want, you know, I want to be able to jack in to the Matrix because he liked it. Uh, if I do this, I'll get that ability back. Motivation clear. But uh, for most other people in the story, I, I, I felt like a lot of things, it was like they were on this side because it was convenient for the story or that side because it was convenient for the story. But other than that, you know, from a story perspective, I was just hard to follow for me. And so listeners, if if I'm completely like, you know, smoking here and I, I just don't get it and you do, like definitely interact with us on social media and let let us know where where we're 
you know, we're off base about that. Tavener, you chose this book to have as the book you wanted to chat about. What was it about, about the book, about Neuromancer that, that you wanted to, that drew you in, like that you wanted to talk about? So I first read it a, a few years ago when, actually, I think, I believe my, my wife, uh, she was then my, I think she was actually just my girlfriend at that point, but she did the sweetest thing ever and for like my birthday or Christmas and just found two sci-fi novels for me to read. And she found this one on accident. Like it, she looked up famous sci-fi novels and selected this one. And so I, uh, there's a little bit of that like uh, sentimental part to it, but then I read it and the first read through was impossible to understand what the heck was going on. And I don't think I really fully understood the story and or its significance, but like the ideas that come out of this novel really sit with you. And it was, I read it before I read my, wrote my first science fiction novel. And I can, looking back, I can definitely see the influence of Neuromancer on my first book. And what's the name of your first book? First of Their Kind. I thought it was a little funny earlier when Robin said first of its kind. Ha <laughs> 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 um, Yes, and my novel, First of Their Kind, uh, is entirely focused on the idea of what if humans could create artificial minds, I call them synthetic intelligence, but artificial minds that are conscious in the way that humans are conscious. So not your typical artificial intelligence that's running on a program. It's more of like an artificial brain. Cool. So this book is perfect to tie into yours. Yes, absolutely. It's I, I mean the the it it plays with this idea of what what is it that an artificial intelligence actually wants? And in first of their kind, uh, the point of view character is the synthetic intelligence, the first synthetic intelligence, and that's why I titled the book first of their kind. Uh, and the pronoun usage is actually really intentional too, because the main character starts as test forty three and then becomes Theron, and they use they pronouns because gender doesn't necessarily make sense for artificial intelligence. Yes, that's true. Unless you're writing in the 1960s, <laughs> in which case it would. But so for for people who are listening to the show right now, Tavenor, what are, give us like three books. If readers of three different stories who are fans of these stories, who you think would really enjoy what you write, what are three books that sort of are similar to what you're writing? So I think the the go-to is actually, I think, Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. The the, the choice of, I, mean, I, mean, I think Philip uh, K. Dick actually calls them synths in the book, I think, right. uh, synthetics. And so my choice of the word synthetic intelligence is definitely inspired by uh, Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. So that's one. Uh, the second, I think, would definitely be probably this one, Neuromancer. I think you should read this one. Um, if you like this one, you'll probably like the themes I'm playing with this person, they're kind. And then to go really far out of left field, the third book that would be inspirational for this, and actually I've started reading these books after I wrote First to Their Kind, so it's kind of retroactive, but The Expanse. Um, the book series, The Expanse, definitely plays a role in my future development of sequels to this book because uh, the way that... S.A. Corey, and it's actually two authors, but their pen name, they explore the crazy ways that technology changes the way that humanity views itself. Uh, Those similar themes play out in First of Their Kind in its sequel. That sounds really fascinating. Yeah, we definitely want people to go check out Tavener's books, and they're available on Amazon. Any other places they can find your books? So First of Their Kind is available on Amazon and also through Barnes & Noble and plenty of other retailers. Uh, Their Greatest Game, the sequel, will be 
uh, digitally exclusive through Kindle Unlimited, but paperback will be available uh, through any distributor. Yeah. Sounds good. And when when does that second book release? June 25th. So I don't know if that's uh, before or after the air date of this episode. It will be, I think, uh, what, a week after? Sounds very good. So uh, based on what you just said, I have a question about the, uh, the book we're talking about, Neuromancer. And again, it could be that it, this is one of those books on the first read-through, you know, like we were saying, it's kind of hard to follow. But what did you all think were the themes of this book? What what was the philosophy or themes or takeaways that you got from it? I'll jump in. <laughs> you know, I think the obvious one is kind of humanity and technology and that relationship and merging. It, it's something that definitely I think we still grapple with now and even more so, but it seems like it was really, really a a strong theme in writing during this this period, basically what it means to be human and how technology affects and reshapes and changes and morphs humanity. I know Gibson at one point had noted that all cultural change is essentially technology driven. And so I think, you know, that's one of the things he was showing with this. And I, I, I think that's definitely true, even from, you know, an anthropological uh, standpoint as well. That's one of them. I'll, I won't keep going down the list just to let you guys talk too. <laughs> but Tavanora, I'll let you take over from there. Yeah. So I think that from a, like a big picture perspective, I think that's exactly right. And zooming in on the characters themselves, I think there's a huge theme of like really just answering the question of what will you do to survive? And I think that that, that question is explored through Case's perspective of, you know, he's trying to just do everything he can to survive and then also have the opportunity to jump into the matrix uh, again. But then also there is, and it, it's not really apparent until the end of the book, but what will the AIs do to survive? And when it turns out, spoilers, that they've kind of been running this whole game from the beginning, exploiting a variety of different humans to make this happen, they're, they're doing everything they can to continue to exist in a way that they want to exist. Right. I think that's well said, and I, I agree with that. I can see that. I personally didn't see any real other, you know, major themes in, in the book that, you know, intrigued me or tripped my trigger, um, like we have with some of the books that, that we're reading. You but, know what's interesting, like, looking at this now and reading it in 2019, is I read this book, and as I'm reading it, I'm, I think, well, this has been done. This is kind of cliched. This is... and. And I, you know, this was kind of the first of its first of its kind, huh? <laughs> right. But it's interesting, you know. It is that's like obviously probably so unfair. But I think, and it's one of the complaints I read when I was reading through different reviews and whatnot to kind of gauge what people thought about it was that one, the technology doesn't really hold up, which I don't think is necessarily fair because you do the best you can with what you've got. But also right. just that this book can't really hasn't been able necessarily to survive its own success. So it was, you know, this brilliant work, but since then it has been done again and it has been done better. And yeah. so now you have different readers who are coming to this later instead of as the first book in their cyberpunk, on their cyberpunk shelf. And then I think once they get to this one, it has these flaws that they're noticing that some of its successors don't have. So I don't, I don't know. I don't know that that's fair to it. And I don't know if we should come into it with the context that, okay, this was written in 1984 and I need to make sure I have that in my brain as I read it. Or if a work of art, a, a work of fiction should be expected to last 
and survive its own success. Yeah, well, I think, you know, Robin, everything you said, I agree with. And I, you know, for example, reading this, you can see where the Matrix is. I mean, I don't know if you guys do chime in. Is Matrix actually based on this? Because if it's not, like Gibson should have gotten some kind of a royalty from Matrix because uh, the movie, The Matrix, is not only obviously dealing with The Matrix, which is mentioned in the book, that's the AI, the, the strata that he's in when he's uh, jacking in. I but, think he, he t- coined the term Matrix also in this. But, cyberspace as well, right. I believe. Yeah. Right. Uh, but also the story, The Matrix, uh, harkens to this so much, you know, for example, the Rasta guy that he's in the little ship with him and that guy's maneuvering him around. It reminded me so much of the of the guys who are the engineers of the ships in the Matrix that Neo's in. And I'm not getting any of those words right right now, but you know what I'm talking right. about, like the guy who's steering the ship uh, that, that Neo's in, the AI having, you know, talking to him and telling him about prophecies, all of this happens in, in Neuromancer, but... The Matrix, the story and the movie gets rid of a lot of the flaws or problems, I think, with Neuromancer. So it's more of a straight shot, clean story that, like you said, it comes after, but it kind of like cleaned up the actual storyline. So it's a little bit more, you know, of a clean shot. In Neuromancer, one of the, I think the problems is that because there's not really a character arc for Case, because it's not really dealing with philosophy the way, say, do Android's dream, it, once you when you strip away all of the cool cyberpunk stuff, it's like, is there really much of a story there? And I think that could be, you know, partly of why it may not stand the test of time like some books do. That's just an opinion of mine. Yeah, I think that's definitely fair. So I, I have a thought on that, though, and this, this may be stretching the bounds of, like, narrative analysis, but given the fact that Case is essentially a drug addict at the beginning of the story. And this entire story is him pushing through his, I mean, there's moments where he, he relapses from his drug addiction and goes back and experiences and dives back into that world in different scenes in this, in the story. And the end of the book, it's kind of an open question of, yeah, he's broken through his ability to, he doesn't have the, the poison on his brain anymore, but he presumably is still going to be struggling with issues of addiction and, in the sense that there may not be an escape from that experience for him, but thinking about um, some of the societal issues that we're dealing with today regarding like the opioid epidemic and stuff, that real experience of drug addiction and how it continually affects someone um, throughout, it is not like something you necessarily very easily beat. Uh, it keeps coming back to you. Uh, is a very real story kind of meshed into this cyberpunk book that yeah. I was just thinking about now because I, I mean it's where I live in Ohio it's a still very huge problem that no one knows how to tackle right modern the modern issues of drug addiction yeah I think that's a really fair point Robin what did you think about case and his story you know I again it was kind of how I felt about about Decker in Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. I think I really enjoy the stories, the characters I don't necessarily find to be all that likable. I thought his story was interesting in the sense that he definitely had clear motivation. I think he showed, you know, certain levels of humanity throughout. I I, I agree uh, with Tavenor. I, I think it's interesting that the the drug addiction and the drug epidemic was kind of highlighted in this. I'm curious to know 
whether Gibson was intentionally using that to like bring to light something that was important to him. I didn't actually dive into that further. I, I thought I liked the fact, again, like I said at the beginning, that Case was an anti-hero and he wasn't necessarily someone who was this perfect knight in shining armor that was easy to like and right. that we were on board with because he was so perfect. And so I, I like characters where you, you sort of have to go out of your way to find ways to like them. I do appreciate when the author makes a clear arc and trail for that to happen, but Right. You know, I could get behind him enough to enjoy it. I, I do agree with what you said before that maybe one of the reasons this doesn't stand the test of time is because once you create something and other people follow and your work has kind of been absorbed, all you have left is not the plot, but the characters you've developed for people to love. And I think that's what this is missing is when the plot was already was absorbed and recreated, we were not left with something still necessarily to love. I, th I think I agree with that because it is in the end, it just turns into it's kind of a very sad, depressing story for a lot of the characters, even even in the end, like it's still it's not a it's not like a happy ending. Right. It's kind of interesting because, okay, we just uh, talked about Watchmen a few weeks ago, and Robin and I were, were noticing that in the Watchmen, one of the things that's really great is that every, all the main characters get a little backstory, done, of course, in a really amazing way. But for each of them, then, you understand where that character came from, what gave rise to that, that personality. And you have some there's all, for each one of them, there's some kind of empathy that builds as the reader. I think one of the things for Case that for me could have made the book so much better is there's this thing when you're building like the emotional story of the character. Some people call it pet the dog or feed the plant or feed the fish or whatever. But with a with sort of a character that might have less of a likable personality or the anti-hero character, if you do something early on that shows them like, you know, quote, feed the dog, and I think that he was trying to do that with this character that the the kind of pseudo girlfriend, but it didn't it fell flat for me because he keeps saying he doesn't give a shit about her. <laughs> you know it's like you know what I mean he like he doesn't it, it's like he's never able to really follow through with doing something for her that shows that he cares about anybody. And it's a little simple thing, but if he had if he had followed through with that, that was one thing I saw. But I actually, I think I was most engaged with the story when we were following Molly. And in contrast to Case, we get the backstory of both Molly and Armitage. And I don't know, maybe this is just me, but I found them then when I start hearing more about them and their backstory and how it got to be where they were in this really kind of pathetic situation they both were in, working in the underbelly of the world. You know, I, I, I wanted to know more about them. You know what I mean? So I kind of, I really, I thought the story lit up more when Molly was on the page, at least for me. Definitely. That's why this drink is not named after Case. <laughs> <laughs> well, so Go ahead, Ron. Oh, uh, no, I, I was going to say something really unimportant, and that was just the fact that, like, how badass that she has, like, knives under her fingernails. <laughs> yeah. Get some Wolverine inspiration there. Yeah. Now yeah. you can say your, your more intelligent thought. <laughs> well, so I, I was thinking about how this brings up a good point about how Gibson decided to write this through a very, very close third-person perspective, zoomed in only through Case's eyes. But then at the same time, he does this really cool thing where – Case is literally following Molly through Molly's eyes. But the flip side of that also is that he, we never get 
Molly's perspective on things. We only see Molly's perspective through Casey's perspective. Right. It's like filtered. But we do get a bit of, but it's interesting. He'd used these two devices. One was he found some records about Armitage. And by reading the records on Armitage, we get the backstory of Armitage. And the other device is allowing him to, he essentially jacks into Molly the way he jacks into the Matrix because of her augmentations to her body. He can do that. And when he does that, we do get more of what Molly's feeling, thinking, seeing. And there's even a point where she's telling him about some of her backstory while he's jacked into her. So she's talking directly to Case and telling him some things. I, I found all that compelling personally when yeah. she's doing that. And it was a cool, uh, cool device for him to be able to jack into her. Absolutely. I, th- I don't know. I can't think of another book that's done that sort of cyberpunk style, like ride along sort of thing. Right. And I just created a really good double entendre. So that was, that was also appropriate. Apropos. (laughs) There you go. uh, (laughs) A proud writer moment. Yeah. (laughs) But um, um. So, okay. This, this book, um, despite the, some of the issues we've had with it was the first novel to win all three, the Hugo, the Nebula, and the Philip K. Dick Award. Do you guys think that was warranted? And again, maybe this goes back to looking at it in a time frame and a historical context, but do you think that was warranted? And do you think if this book were published today, it would have the same level of success? My, my first question is, what other books were coming out in 1984? What, what was its competition? Yeah, I don't know. Because I, I guess my, my thought is, is that if we're thinking about the barriers that this book is breaking in what's possible for writing science fiction, that I think it's deserved. But I don't know enough about what other books came out in 1984 for it to go up against. I mean, the people that vote on the Hugo Awards, if I'm not mistaken, are the members of, you know, like Worldcon, right? So like people who get a ticket to Worldcon get to vote on the Hugos. And so they're, they're, I'm sure there are writers in that, but they're fans as well. And then the Nebulas, I think, is the science fiction and fantasy writers of America. And yeah. again, listeners, if I'm incorrect, please point out in our stuff that I'm wrong. But my point with that is that it's kind of like the Oscars, right? Where <laughs> like the Oscars is in some respects a popularity contest. And so I'm not saying that to diminish these awards in any way, shape, or form, but They are largely, I mean, how many times have you watched a movie that won all these awards and years later you're like, really? You know, because it's always about, I think, the times that it's it's in. And I think, Tavener, that's what you're saying is like, at this time, you know, it was just so groundbreaking. And I don't think, even if it didn't win today because it created the genre and now it would be compared to other things doing the genre, it might not stand up as well. But at the time, I, I can only imagine... I didn't read it then, but if I had, I would have thought, holy shit, you know, this is so fucking amazing because it's completely unlike the things that came before it. So I like people like what they like. And if they all liked it, then I say, you know, good on them. You know what I'm saying? Like if they voted awards for it, it probably deserved it at the time. I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying. I'm no, sorry. I I think that's fair. It's it, there's no right answer to this. I'm just asking yeah. the question because I think it's so easy to to judge a story and to look at it through the lens of our own lives and our own experiences and, you know, 40 years later. And so it's just there's I think there's no right answer. I'm just yeah. throwing that out there to confuse us all. 
Well, and I think your question about would it be published today is also such a really complicated question because are we working under the impression that then no cyberpunk genre, or is this a world where cyberpunk didn't become a genre, Neuromancer didn't inspire a bunch of books, and so we just push the, the timeline of cyberpunk back to starting today, would it be published? That's a really hard question because I definitely think the writing style of this book is very different from what is being published today if we're talking just about the writing. I like the alternate universe take on this. Like <laughs> in another world, if this and the yeah, I like it. <laughs> but <laughs> you know, you're right. There's no I mean, it's like a what if right kind of I I could ask forever. But then, yeah, but then, like, let's challenge ourselves here with this question. I mean, are we all just, like, sucking down pablum books now? In a way, you could say, well, this wouldn't be published because now, like, modern—I'm just going to stick with Americans because we live in America. I can't speak to other countries. But, like, we have zero attention span when everything's spoon-fed to us. You know what I'm saying? And I'm including myself in that. Like, give me 140 to 280 characters. That's kind of where my attention span is now. And a book like this challenges you because he is creating language, he's creating whole environments, and it's it's difficult to get through. And so it's annoying me when I'm reading it. But then as we're talking, I'm like, well, you know, if it wouldn't be published today, how sad is that? You know what I'm saying? Like, Yeah, because yeah. Yeah, it's, it's hard to read, but like, I mean— we do a lot of things that are hard for very good reasons. So, right. Like, it, <laughs> right. Like and I it. think from like being hard to read is kind of a fun exercise as a writer. I mean, this guy, there's no denying he's creative as heck and yeah. his ideas are phenomenal. And he's writing about the internet net before the internet comes out. And he's writing about you know, artificial intelligence and hacking and all of these things on a typewriter, which to me is like such a phenomenal twist to his story. But yeah, I, I think one of the things I also was reading in different people's reviews was that they had to read this book maybe two or three times, but on the third time, they absolutely loved it. Like, here's all the issues I had with one. Here's all the issues I had with two. And then I read it the third time and I like it clicks and I get it. And I'm not worried about the jargon. I'm reading the story beyond. So maybe that's one of the neat challenges for this story. And listeners, this is a good question for you guys. To those of you who love Neuromancer, did you love it on your first try? Or are you one of those people who's read it two or three times and really gotten to the meat of the story that way? Right. That's a great question for our listeners. Uh, One of the things I really enjoyed about the story and is I, (laughs) and Robin might chuckle about this, I really like simile and metaphor, like a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah. <laughs> Inside joke. Uh, yeah, I, a lot. And so he has some, I mean, like almost every paragraph, especially at the beginning when he's world building, there are these amazing metaphors and similes. And Robin read one that was incredibly obtuse, but not all of them are that, you know, obtuse. But some of his language is just really lovely. Like there's this one I I had the need to write down because I really loved it. He says, The road from the airport had been dead straight, like a neat incision laying the city open. I mean, that's nice, right? Wow, that's gruesome too. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. That's one of those that you're like, I wish I wrote that. Exactly. (laughs) Like if I could write one fucking sentence like that, and this is a whole book like that, where it's not only a lovely language, but as Tavenor just pointed out, it's gruesome, but it's gruesome in the way that's meant to be because it's describing this gruesome kind of place. 
an environment. And you know what I mean? So it's all, it's working on levels that are just amazing. So I just had to share, I had to nerd out over that and share that little. So I have, I have a brief question about this setting that he's created. Do you, I mean, we see it through like through the eyes of the people that are living in the underbelly of this world, but would you want to live in this world? Do you think this is like a good sounding world or is it kind of a terrifying world? No, I don't want to live there. (laughs) I don't either. No. Yeah, I don't want to live in any of these futuristic societies that people imagine. I like my green rolling hills and I like real animals and I like, <laughs> you know, fresh juice in my cocktails. Like, <laughs> right. I think, I think I agree because it's, it's a very sterilized, but also dirty world in the sense that like he describes every part of the world as just like massive urban sprawl. Everything's roads and, it's all interconnected. Like they hop from Turkey to London to the United States to Japan with no time at all. And then they, then a lot of it occurs not even on the ground. Like it's, it's there's like no environment. Like there's he builds a fascinating environment, but there is no environment. Right. Yeah. I mean, the good thing about it, in a way, in some perspective, is that there's like just city states instead of countries. So. It, you know, they can just travel freely from one place to the next, which is kind of a cool thing. You know, like if you could do that and do that quickly, that would be fun. But then when you get there, the world that he's showing us, of course, then we have to point out that it's all through the eyes of Case and his compadres. So they are living in a completely different world that that I think Case really feels comfortable in. I mean, at some point he's kind of talking about that, like, you know, when he's back in the sprawl or when he's in Chiba City, it's like he, as nasty as it is, it, I think he feels like that's where he belongs. So if there is any beautiful, lovely, amazing part of this world, we don't get to see any of it. And so I don't know if, it, you know what I mean? Like, Yeah, but I think, I think there, there's this question of, well, maybe there are like cute little suburbs with a city park nearby, but it's not where, that's, that's not what Case wants to go see, so. Right, like he does or, or like, he, that's not just part of, it's just not part of his world. But maybe it's not like that at all anywhere. I don't know. Hard to say, but I won't, I don't want to live there for sure. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think I do either. <laughs> but that's a good question for our listeners. Do you know, like, have you ever read a futuristic story where you would want to live there? Have you ever read a futuristic story that create a future world that sounds that you'd actually want to go there? That's a great question. Please let us know which books, because I I'm scratching my head and like absolutely not in my mind. If anyone says Ready Player One, they are absolutely wrong. Because yeah, the virtual world in that story is great, but like climate change is destroying the entire planet. So right, right. No, <laughs> that's the thing. It's like I can't think of one where there's not some horrid. Like they might be escaping to a cyber world that's cool, but the external world that they're actually, their meat sacks actually live in are, is, you know, usually horrendous. Okay. I have to complain about one thing in this book that um, <laughs> listeners might, you know, like want to, I don't know, pound me for, but I'm so fucking sick of tropes about women that just need to die. And here's the one that, I don't know, this is probably the second or third time we've seen this in like what, Robin, eight or nine books that we've done so far, but something like that. Do do male writers 
only see women as whores? I mean, is that like, like women in their no. books are no, like- No, secretaries. There's also they're, secretaries. They're, they're secretaries, they're whores, or they make them a sandwich. You know what I mean? It's like- At least here they're called meat puppets, which like is like at least a creative way to call it. I don't know. Right. <laughs> like, I'm glad you like, brought this up though, because in listening to your previous episodes, I knew you were going to talk about this because <laughs> what, like the, the first scene where- Molly and Case are like alone together. They just have sex. And it's like, this is very sudden and unexpected. Right. Which I don't necessarily have a problem with that because if she's not actually prostituting herself and she's got agency and she wants to bang bang him, fine, go for it. I don't care. You know, whatever. But then I think where this started to irritate me was later when we actually learn about Molly's backstory. It's like, then the shoe drops. Of course, she was a prostitute. You know, it's like every tragic backstory ever for anybody, either if it's a male character and he's like an antihero, what made him slide down the path to this horrid life was that his mom was a whore or he watched someone whore. You know what I mean? It's like, or if it's a woman, what leads to her tragic backstory is she was a prostitute. And so, you know, just as an aside, it's like, I'm really kind of done with the prostitute trope. Like, really don't want to see it anymore. But alas, we probably will because Robin, we, <laughs> we've only done like seven or eight of the top 100. Most yes. of them predate 1990. So we're probably going to have a lot, a lot of you that. Have, you but well, any of them, yet, have you? Have, do which one? You haven't gotten to Dune yet, have you? Uh, uh, no, n- no. I, well, I think we've both read Dune, but we have not discussed it yet. So we will, uh, <laughs> yeah, there, there's so many fun things to dive into here. <laughs> yeah. Closing thoughts, perhaps? Are we? Yeah. So I guess my thought is, is I'm, I, it's my understanding that Neuromancer has sequels. Is that correct? Yes. At least. I have, I love Neuromancer. I have absolutely no interest in reading the sequels. That's my closing thought. Yeah, that's interesting. So, but why is that? Why do you think that is? I think it's a complete story and I don't really, I think this book is good in its own right. It has its flaws, yes, but I don't really want to explore it further. And I, I can't really quantify that, but it's, it just doesn't, the, 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 it, it, it feels like it's, one, it's a one-off thing and I don't really see how future stories, especially because, once again, spoilers, I'm pretty sure the book ends with a line where it says, like, Case never sees Molly again. And, well. Right. right. She yeah, was if, like, if Molly's in there. We definitely don't care if she's not in the story. So, um. <laughs> What about you, Ron? So maybe she is. Maybe the stories are from her perspective. I don't know. That's true. That'd be worth it. Um, you know, I, I enjoyed it. It was different. Uh, from anything I've ever read. And I appreciated that. I I have a deep appreciation for its role in the cyberpunk genre in the science and fantasy realm. Again, from a historical context, I think it was really groundbreaking for its time. And so looking at it from that lens, I think anyone who likes to read in this genre or write in this genre should definitely pick it up and read it. I think it's one that you should have on your bookshelf, not just for display, but actually (laughs) to be able to talk about. So I, you know, I would recommend it. It had its flaws and its issues, but it's definitely, it was enjoyable. And I, and I would like to give it a second chance just to see if I can get past some of that stuff. If if I can find clarity with a, another go. So yeah, I would definitely recommend it. Yeah. I think Rob and I feel the same way. And I would also say that, as I mentioned earlier, if you like the original Blade Runner movie, 
And you like the the noir feel of that and like the gritty feel of of movies or books like that. The Neuromancer, you're probably going to love because I enjoyed that aspect of it, uh, getting into that gritty underworld that you don't see a lot in, in books. And uh, his language is so, you know, beautiful that I really enjoyed that as well. But um, take the time, like, I would say I was reading this relatively quickly because I had to read it for this show. You know what I'm saying? So we, we because we record frequently, you know what I mean? It's like we're on a timeline where I couldn't like read it and then set it aside for a week or two and then put, bring it back um, back up to read it. So if you are going to read it for the first time, I would say, you know, give yourself time to really absorb all of this um, new language that he's throwing at you because it's a lot. Like he's not only describing this matrix, but he's also describing a world that's very unlike our world, plus he's creating language. And all of that together is a lot. Yeah, I think both times I read this book, it took me two months. Yeah, I could see that. I read it in a week and that was kind of fast for this book. Yeah. So fun conversation. Um, yeah, if they, if he wrote a sequel about Molly Millions, I would want to read that because I think she's fascinating and I'd want to know like why she has mirrors for eyes. And I think there's a movie, not to like dive into something else. I forgot what it's called, but I think there's an early 90s movie or something that's her really? backstory. Really? Yes. We will post it on Twitter if I find that, listeners. Cool. <laughs> if I'm absolutely right. Or if you guys listen to this and you know what I'm talking about, send us a message and let us know because so, I think I read that. I just Googled it and it looks like Molly is in a lot of other books. Yes. So, okay. Yes. Well, then I may have to check out more of his work if Molly's in it because she was kind of cool. But okay, this so this was a lot of fun, man. We really enjoyed having you, C.D. Tavenor, on the show. I hope you'll come back sometime and tell us more about some other books of yours. Yeah, I would love to. This was a lot of fun, and uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, I, this it was it was a great reason to read this book again because I definitely think it was a book that deserved a second read. Yeah, absolutely. And everyone, please go check out C.D. C period, D period, or C, D period. You know, anyway, you get it. You don't have to have the periods in there. Just check out C, D, Tavenor, T-A-V-E-N-O-R, and his books, First of Their Kind, and the second one, Tavenor. Their Greatest Game. Yes, which will be out soon when you listen to this. Um, check those out on Amazon. And um, you also can follow C, D, Tavenor on social media. And we will, on our webpage, not only have links to his books on the first page of our webpage, but also on the episodes page in season one, you will have links to his social media and um, his books on Amazon. So please go there and you can check all of that out and follow him on uh, social media. Always a good time chatting with C.D. Tavenor. Well, my great. Yeah. My glass is almost empty. How about you guys? It's been empty for a while. Oh, (laughs) Molly's eyes are closed. That is sad. You need to go fill your glass. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it has been fun, guys. Thank you so much. Another great book conversation. Yes. Yeah, fantastic. Cheers, y'all. Cheers, and thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Tipsy Nerds Book Club podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share the fun with your friends and family. Love what you heard and want the fun to continue? Head over to Patreon and become a patron of the Tipsy Nerds podcast. We love our patrons. Want a recipe for a cocktail you heard here? You can find recipes as well as show notes, episode transcripts, and helpful links on our website, tipsynerdsbookclub.com. 
And as always, join us next week for a new episode of Libations and Geeking Out. Cheers. <laughs>